Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, glad that you're here. For those of you who are here in the house, those of you who are uh, watching, listening online, and we even have some people on the backstage patio, which wasn't even a possibility in the first service. So we're glad that you guys are here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the uh, book of Luke, chapter 15. We are continuing in our series that we've been in, really for most of the summer, uh, called Short Stories, where we're looking at the parables of Jesus. And uh, we are really kind of coming down to the end here. we got three more. Three of the next four weeks are going to be finishing up this series. Justin's going to be helping me in a few weeks. And today we're looking at a parable that's probably very, very familiar to most of you. Some of you maybe not, that's fine. Uh, but it is a parable called the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, so we're looking at the parable of the prodigal son, the story that Jesus told that's found in Luke chapter 15. And so we're going to be taking a look at that today and next week. We're kind of taking this parable because it is pretty broad in its scope. And, and Jesus, I think, really uh, told this story for a very, very uh, specific reason. But I believe that there were three different characters and therefore at least two audiences and something for us to learn from the third character. And so we're going to take two weeks to talk about the parable of the prodigal son. Now, um, before we dive into the actual message uh, and to uh, what we're going to talk about in God's Word, we're going to—I want us to, to kind of understand the context of of this parable, because as with many of the parables and many of the stories that Jesus told, which, by the way, throughout his ministry, throughout most of the rest of his ministry, once he began to tell parables, he used parables in almost every ministry circumstance right up until his death. And so we find Jesus here in this context that is incredibly important. And I think I want to step back and even take a look at the whole gospel of Luke. Not all of it this morning, by the way. Don't worry. You're going to get to lunch on time. I promise you, okay? Uh, and, and so our goal is to get there before the other churches. So anyway, we're going to be taking a look at this because I think it's, under, it's important for us to understand the book and the way that uh, Luke wrote the book is vitally important. He was a doctor... And so he had a very scientific, um, even some, in some cases, medical approach to writing the, this gospel. And you won't find this parable in any of the other gospels. Uh, John doesn't include any of the parables. Matthew includes some, and Mark includes some, and Luke includes some. But this parable is only found in the book of Luke, and it's only found where we're going to be taking a look at it today. But Luke is broken up. You can kind of divide the whole book up into three sections the first section is chapters 1 through 3, which is the story of Jesus' birth. We have the story of Jesus' birth. And of course, a doctor would document in his account of the life of Jesus, the uh, birth of Jesus, and he goes on to talk about the line of Jesus' heritage and uh, lineages, uh, lineage and ancestry. Chapters 3 through 9 talk about how Jesus was, in fact, Israel's Messiah, and he was also uh, the, uh, uh, God's prophet to Israel, his true prophet to Israel. And the reason I want you to know that today is because that builds this case of kind of some tension beginning to, to build between the religious leaders and what Jesus was saying and what he was doing. And so we see here in this parable the beginning of that tension that I often will talk about because it's such an important aspect of Jesus' ministry, this tension that was building and this gap, if you will, that was building 
between Jesus and the new message of a relationship with God and the religious Jewish religious leaders of that day, namely the Pharisees, I almost mixed Sadducees and Pharisees, mainly the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of that day who were preaching a message of adherence to the law to have a relationship with God. And so there's this building, this kind of gap, and then all of a sudden in Luke 9 through the end of the book, Jesus goes on a journey. And he goes on, he's traveling, he's on a journey. He brings a lot of his followers with him. In fact, he sends some of his followers out into the villages, into the cities and towns uh, to prepare the people there for his coming and for the message that he was going to be bringing to those cities and those towns. And so he's on this road trip, um, maybe, you know, not exactly like the road trip from Ohio down to here. So anyway, uh, enough about Ohio. Uh, but it's, it, the reason that I want you to know that is because it's important to understand that they were heading into Jerusalem. The reason they were on this road trip, the reason they were on this journey was because they were gathering with people from all over the place in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. This was an important time, not only in the life of, of the first century, but it was important in that specific culture. There would have been people gathering in Jerusalem from everywhere. And so they're on this journey, and Jesus is, is portrayed in Luke's gospel as a bit of uh, kind of a, a, a like of Moses and a like of David. Luke makes sure that the readers or the hearers would have understood that this is what Jesus is, that he's kind of like them and, in fact, replaces them. And so that, again, would have built this tension between the religious leaders and him. But more importantly, it was the message that he was preaching, that Jesus was preaching, that caused them angst. It caused them problems. And Jesus would come into these villages during this journey, and he would talk about how um, we need to think differently, and the world needed to be turned upside down on subjects like money, um, we probably still need that. Wouldn't you agree with that? Uh, he, he wanted to turn the world upside down in their approach to money and possessions and things. He wanted to turn their world upside down in terms of conflict. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, highlights Jesus' teaching on that during this particular time. And he also highlighted how we need to think differently about how we treat the poor and how we treat outsiders. And in Luke, in fact, the matter is, is that Luke's gospel is very much focused on those who were poor, those who were in need. And Jesus wanted people to go from a place of greed to a place of generosity and from a place of anger to a place of forgiveness. And he wanted people to understand that in this new gospel that he was coming, ordained by God, appointed by God to bring, that outsiders were welcome. And you can imagine that that really upset the Jewish leaders of that day, the religious leaders. They were very much upset by the message that Jesus was bringing. And they were even more upset by the fact that people were coming to faith in him. And so we have this kind of contextualization of, of what Jesus is talking about and this tension that's building. But Jesus wants them to understand. He wants them to see this. He wants them to understand that, that the gospel is for everyone. And so he begins to teach in parables, and they still don't understand. They still can't get it. I remember, this was like decades ago, but I remember the first time my grandparents got a computer. 
And I remember my dad and I trying to uh, explain to them what a mouse does. And it was impossible. They just didn't get it. They didn't understand, right? And so it was kind of one of those moments. Have you ever been there trying to explain something to someone and they just aren't getting it? And that's where Jesus was. So he used this particular parable to try to illustrate this gulf of separation between one crowd or from one crowd to another. Luke 15, actually, if we step back before this parable in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it actually explains who was there listening to Jesus as he taught this parable. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders of the day, and the scribes, they, what does it say they did? They what? You can say it out loud. They grumbled, okay? Any of you grumbled over the last day or two? Any of you do that? I have big time grumbled over the last day or two. Some of you know my daughter, Sydney, went to college yesterday. And on our way there, any, like, like, you know, emotion I had about her leaving, which I did and I still do, and you might get a minute of that today, sorry. Uh, my, my emotion about that was kind of stunted because when I got on I-95, when we got on I-95 heading to the Savannah Airport uh, at the Georgia and South Carolina state line, I know this doesn't surprise you, there's a huge backup of traffic. And we were at a standstill and it ended up, there was a truck on fire. So I was grumbling yesterday, just like the Pharisees, all right? So any, you probably have been there grumbling, but they were grumbling for a different reason. They were saying, this man receives, what does it say? Sinners. This man receives sinners. And not only that, it says this man receives sinners or what? And he eats with them. I mean, Jesus is, is meeting with people who are far from God, and he's sitting down and he's breaking bread with them. And they were mortified by this. They were shocked. And they judged, and they criticized, and they grumbled, and they complained. And Jesus tried, he tried, he tried to, to, to decrease this gap, to, to help them understand this difference and understand the tension. And it wasn't working. And so all of a sudden, we have in the audience, when Jesus is about ready to share this parable as Luke records, we have this separation of two groups of people that is actually the audience who's listening to him tell this parable. It's almost like a middle school dance. You go into a middle school dance, and what happens? The boys go over to the right, and the girls go to the left. You're right? You remember middle school dances when all of a sudden, man, you're like looking around going, everybody that came with the date or a group of people, they've all separated. Girls are over here, boys are over here. Totally different. And that's what was going on here. And the Pharisees wanted Jesus not to meet with sinners. And so you have two groups of people. You have a group on the left or the right. It doesn't matter. I'm not making a political statement here. They were the sinners and the tax collectors. And on the other side, you had people who were religious. And they stood on their good works and their adherence to the law. And we're going to call the people that were sinners and the people that were tax collectors, we're going to call them people that were all about self. And the people on the other side, we're going to say that they are defined and they were all about self-righteousness. Those were the two groups of people as Jesus shared this parable. And I'm going to read just certain parts of the message version of this today because I think what you're going to see is there's actually a close connection between people who are about self 
and people who are about self-righteousness. And the connection is, is that both of those attitudes are born in sin. And they're born, both of them, they're born in trying to be apart from God. And I think today that maybe some of us, myself included, will learn a little bit of a lesson from these first two characters in the parable, this parable of the prodigal son. Next week we're going to talk about God in this story or the father in this story. Let's read. I'm going to skip around a little bit. I'm going to read from the message, but I'm not going to read all of it. I'm reading from verses 11 through 32 to begin with. Here's Jesus as recorded by Luke. Then he said, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger of the sons said to his father, father, I want right now what's coming to me. I'm going to come back to that in a moment because this is an important thing. The younger son in this story that Jesus is telling the one who is prodigal, you'll see that in a moment, he's asking for his inheritance. We're going to come back to that in a moment. So the father, the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and he left for a what? A distant country. He left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, uh, um, he, he wasted everything that he had after he had gone through all of his money there was a bad famine all throughout that country, and he even began to feel ill. We kind of know what that's all about. Anyway, over the last three years, he signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was essentially the guy that cleaned the pig pens. He was so hungry that he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That's the very definition of rock bottom right there, isn't it? I mean, I grew up in a city. I don't know much about pigs and pens, but that seems like the rock bottom when you're cleaning the pig pens and you can't even get a corn cob. No one will give you a corn cob. Verses 17 through 20. That brought him to his senses. And he said, all those farmhands working for my father, they sit down to three meals a day. Here I am, starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father, and I love this part. I'm going to go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against God. I've sinned against you. By the way, have you ever been at that point in time when maybe something that you did or didn't do was found out, and all of a sudden you're like, ah, I got to tell the truth, but man, I got to rehearse the truth. Because like this is unbelievable what I've done, is unbelievable what I haven't done. That's what he's doing here. He's coming to terms with himself, and he's kind of rehearsing it. He's kind of going through this in his mind or maybe even out loud. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. And he got right up, and he went home to his father. And we're going to wait until next week to talk about his father's response. But just in summary, his father's response is to go out and greet him and to have a party. To have this amazing meal and bring everybody he can to the meal because he wants to celebrate because the father thought the son had died. Remember, there was a famine in the land. And so I want to skip down to the other son in verse uh, about 28. The other brother, he stomped off. In angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. 
the son said, look, how many years have I stayed here serving you, dad, never giving you one moment of grief? Have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? I love how the message adds in the friends there. And he says it in the ESV and in all the translations. Then the son of yours who has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go all out with a feast? His father said this, son, you don't understand. You're here. You're with me all the time. Everything that is mine is yours, but this is a wonderful time, and we had to celebrate this brother of yours. He was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. I want to see if you maybe identify with the prodigal son, the younger brother, or maybe you identify with the older brother. My guess is, is that what sin does in our lives before Jesus and sometimes even after Jesus, after before we found Jesus or even after we found Jesus, is it leads us to kind of lean to one of these sides or the other, to lean to being a person that's all about self. Or maybe on the other end of the spectrum, we lean towards being about self-righteousness. And so I want to look at these two characters today. And again, we're going to get back to the third character, which is the Father, which is a great representation of God next week, because I really want to dive in and take a look at what God does to restore us. Now, now this, this son, this, this prodigal son, this younger son, he begins by, by asking the Father for his share of an inheritance. I want you to think about the, the kind of, like mindset that he was in, and Jesus is telling the story, the mindset that this character's in. He's asking his father, who is still alive, for his portion of the inheritance. I mean, I kind of want to go, hey, how's that, how's that going to work out for you? He's still alive. You're not going to get an inheritance until he's gone. And as a matter of fact, in this culture, in that day and age, in the first century, it's so interesting the story that Jesus is telling here to drive home this point to us, because they would have had a cultural norm that would have said the older brother of a family in that day and age would have received a double portion of the share of the inheritance. I'm the oldest in my family. I kind of wish that I had lived back in that day and age. Because they would receive that, and in fact, if it was just the two of them, and it gets a little bit complicated, but the older of the two brothers would have received two-thirds of the inheritance. And so the younger brother is sitting there going, I'm not going to get the larger amount. I want it now. And in fact, he didn't even ask for it, did he? What did he do? He demanded it, didn't he? He demanded it. Look at verse 12. I'm reading from the ESV now. And the younger of the sons, he said to his father, Father, what does he say? Say it with me. Father, give me. Give me my share of the property that is coming to me. I remember when my kids were young, I'd be like, you didn't even ask nicely. You didn't even ask. You're demanding that, he, that the father give. And, and what did the father do? I mean, I'm not saying that this is great parenting advice here. Jesus isn't talking about parenting, but what does the father do? He gave it to him. We're going to talk about that next week. Why that's so important. He gave him what 
He demanded. The father gave him what he wanted that he may have deserved or may not have deserved, but he gave it to him way before he deserved it. In that day and age, to even ask a patriarch or a father for an inheritance before he was gone was essentially to say, I wish you were dead. That's how audacious the request that the younger brother makes was in Jesus' story. And it drives home a point that while God is sovereign, he gives us free will. And before Jesus, before we choose Jesus as our Savior, and even after, God lets us live selfishly if we choose. We can choose him and choose to live selfishly, but, but, Christ follower, when we do, when we do, we cheapen Christ's death on the cross. And I think that Jesus, in part, is trying to explain to us that this prodigal son is partly prodigal away from the father. He's gone a long way from the father. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's demanded what he doesn't deserve when he doesn't deserve it. He is going to the nth degree to try to communicate to us that essentially the younger brother here, the prodigal son, was saying, I don't want to be a part of that family. And when we choose to live in sin, that's what we're saying to God. I don't want to live here. I don't want to be a part of this. Paul in his letter to the churches in the area of Galatia, he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is not God saying that we can't make a mistake. What he's saying is if we live a life that is so obsessed with the flesh, then perhaps Jesus hasn't changed us in the first place has jesus changed you has he made a difference in your life that you can see and feel and that others around you are attracted to and that they see and feel that there are just numerous so many countless stories about people whose lives have been changed by jesus and they go from living one way that is all about themselves living for him. Not only does the prodigal son or this younger son, not only does he make this audacious demand from the father, he goes to a far away country, doesn't he? Look at verses 13 and 14 again. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. I mean, he went far, far away from the Father. He went far from his home. He was so obsessed with him that he went as far as he could go, and that's what sin does. That's what self does. That's what an obsession with selfish living does. It takes you and I farther than we could ever thought possible. It causes us to stay longer than we ever, ever expected to stay. And in the end, selfish living costs us more than we ever thought that we would ever pay. Isn't that true? You've probably, some of you have been there. I've been there. Or wake up one day and realize, come to terms with, kind of come to my senses. I am far from God. Because I am consumed with myself. 
See, when we live our lives for self and apart from God, we're going to crash and burn, aren't we? Maybe some of you today, you know Jesus as your Savior, but you're still living for yourself. Maybe if you were honest with you, you'd go, man, I am, I am, I'm heading for crash and burn. I'm heading for disaster. See, Jesus wanted those who were in that boat, the sinners and the tax collectors that were there listening to him, he wants us now to realize the extent of selfish living and sin and, and the impact it makes on our lives and on the lives of those around us. So my question to you at this point is, has selfish living cost you, caused you to crash and burn? Are you maybe heading for it now? Maybe today's message and story from Jesus is for you. Maybe it's time for you to stop living for self and live for him. And then there's a second character that he talks about, the eldest son. The elder son, he represents the self-righteousness in that room that was divided between those who were for self and those who were for self-righteousness. The, the elder son represents the Pharisees. Now, let's have some fun with this and be honest with each other this morning. We've probably all been there. How, how many of you, I'm not going to ask you about your siblings, but how many of you had a sibling or have siblings in your house? Or, raise your hand. Okay, most of us in here. Um, I, have, weren't there times that, like, you got in trouble for something? Or maybe you didn't get praised for something? And your kid sister, that's my case, or your kid brother, or stepbrother, or step-sibling, they got a little kudos for what they did, and you're sitting there going, really? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, really? I did that yesterday, and everybody just walked off, like, come on. Like, I got all A's. They got A's and B's, and you're throwing a party? Really? Seriously? We're measuring this by academic prowess, by intelligence. Really, that's what we're going to do here. And the tendency for us is to, when we see someone else being praised for something, someone else receiving something, someone else getting away with something, our tendency is to maybe go from a selfish place to a self-righteous place and go, really? But look at me. Look what I've done. Look how I've behaved. And you see, the Pharisees and the scribes in, that were listening to Jesus, they were all concerned about this. They were concerned about the veneer. They were concerned about the way that people acted, the behavior that they, they lived. They were concerned about the actions and the produce and, and rightness. They were concerned about the law and how someone else lived according to the law. They didn't care about the heart. And I just had to chuckle this week as I was preparing for this and reading this and letting God deal with me on some things here. I just had to chuckle to think Jesus is telling this story and it's kind of obvious that the sinners and the tax collectors that are eating with Jesus, they're the prodigal. But I wonder how long it took for the religious leaders. I wonder how long it took for, for it to dawn on them that they're the younger brother. In this story, excuse me, they're the older brother in the story. The good brother. The one I call the bitter brother. Verses 25 
through 32. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He heard the party. He called one of the servants, and he asked, what what do these things mean? That is such an older brother move right here, isn't it? It's like, I got to find out what's going on. I'm not going to find out myself. Hey, tell me, come here, tell me what's going on. I love that move. Anyway, I've done that move. Anyway, verse 27, he said to him, your brother's come, your father's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Look at verse 28. He was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out into the field and entreated him. But he answered to his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disappointed you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you, gave, you, didn't, you never gave me a young goat, never mind a fatted calf, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, like I can just hear the disdain, the contempt, right? When this son of yours came out who has devoured your property with prostitutes, no lack of clarity there, you killed the fattened calf for him? We've probably all been there, haven't we? Just angry that someone else got the good thing when you yourself have been good. We've probably all been there. And then we'll look in detail at the father's response next week, but look at it quickly. Verse 31 and 32. Son, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother. He was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost. Now he's found. See, when we begin to compare ourselves to other people, we're on a a slippery slope, aren't we? We're on a dangerous path when we sit on the sidelines and sum up what's going on and we begin to compare ourselves with someone else or a group of someone else's. When we play that game, it only leads to bitterness and self-righteousness. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And there are the Pharisees and the scribes listening to Jesus tell the story. And I'm sure they're like, hey, uh, I think that might be us in this story. Yet they never understood it, did they? They never understood. The older brothers just as focused on himself, the older good brother, as the younger prodigal brother. First John, verses, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in what? It's in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. See, the response of the older brother in Jesus' story shows us that when we allow self-righteousness to be esteemed and promoted, bitterness will ultimately take root. Insecurity will grow. And you and I, we will stubbornly resist restoration. That's what happens when we decide, I'm going to compare myself and I'm going to stand on my good 
works. Listen, Christ follower, I want you to hear today, and you're going to hear as we read, as we close here in a few moments, you're going to hear and read that there is nothing that we can do that is good enough. Jesus has done all of that. And so the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son is a story of not living for self, but also not standing and living for self-righteousness, which is, to be honest with you, what we Christians tend to do sometimes, right? It's what we do, man. It's kind of our makeup. I, I, I have experienced in my own life times when I am far from God, and he convicts me of sin, and I come back to him, and the next day, in my mind, I'm pointing fingers at people that are, have, have been far from God for the same reasons I was far from God in the first place. And both of those extremes is not where he wants us to be. He wants us to understand all that he has done and live like a child of the king. So my question today is maybe, maybe, maybe your high view of yourself has caused you to be in that camp of self-righteousness. Or maybe your like, obsession with self has caused you to be in the group of people over on this side, like the prodigal son. Listen, church, Christ follower, Either way, either way, we're living for us. We're living for me. We're living for I when we do that. And he wants so much more for you. Are you living for self? That's what this parable does. It compares, it lines up, and that's what we talked about in week one, that these parables line up something to compare it to something else so that we can see where we are. Are you self or are you self-righteous? He wants so much more from you than either of those two choices. He wants you to realize all that you are in him and realize that you have died to the old way of living and it's time to live in a new way. Father, I thank you so much for this story. God, I can't wait till we talk next week about the Father in this story who represents everything that you have done for us. But right now, let us pause and just take inventory in our lives. Allow us to be introspective for a moment and to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves a question. Am I, am I living for myself? Or am I living for something that I can compare, lord over, hold over other people in my life? Am I living a self-fulfilling, self-absorbed life? Or am I living an angry, bitter life because of the things that I haven't received, the accolades I haven't been given, the inheritance that was supposed to be all mine? Someone else got the majority of it. Father God, I pray that you would help us to see the difference between living for self and self-righteousness and how all those things are born out of a, an attitude of the heart that says it's all about me to a place where we realize what you did on the cross for us, that we have died to the old way of living and that you want us to take off all of that old stuff and to live for you. Help me to live for you. Help us to live for you. Help Hilton Head Island Community Church to be the kind of church and the kind of group of Christ followers that live for you. 
Give us the courage and the conviction to do that. I pray in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus.